Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. This episode, I'm joined by Silicon Valley entrepreneur and strategy consultant Sramana Mitra to unpack the basics of venture capital. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the startup rundown for Thursday, the 14th of December. As the smoke clears from a number of incidents that dealt a blow to diversity and equity in the startup ecosystem, some positive and hopefully disruptive change is emerging. The Grapevine launched this week at askthegrapevine.com and on LinkedIn and Instagram. What's the Grapevine? According to their website, they are a grassroots collective led by female startup founders, operators, investors, and leaders who are setting up Grapevine as a platform to allow the sharing of anonymized stories that illustrate incidents of harassment and bullying within startups. They say each story serves as a case study, offering support and advice into how companies, leaders, bystanders, and those directly affected can collaboratively work towards transforming our ecosystem for the better. The Grapevine Collective includes tech stars Kristen Hunter, a former guest on this program, Afterwork Ventures' Jesse Wu, and Blackbird's Paloma Newton. No sign of the California raisins yet, but there's still time. Not that I imagine that any of you would have a story to tell, but if you did, you could visit askthegrapevine.com and share it anonymously. The Grapevine has already posted a couple of examples of stories on LinkedIn, and all I can say is don't read them if you want to feel better about the human race because we pretty much suck. But seriously, this is a fantastic initiative, and we can't wait to see what action and results come out of it as it grows because something has to change. In other news, new legislation has just been passed to make it easier for startups and tech employees to move to Australia. Startup Daily reports that the new Skills in Demand visa is a fast-track seven-day turnaround working visa for migrants set to occupy positions earning at least $135,000 a year. The government has implemented this new visa process in the hopes that it will encourage migration of skilled technicians to Australia who may have previously been discouraged by long wait times. The Skills in Demand visa is part of a set of changes to federal migration policies. In particular, it will soon become easier for migrants to switch employers through a public registry of approved temporary migrant sponsors. The government hopes that this change will help stem worker exploitation. Fitbit has been hit with an $11 million penalty for misleading Australian consumers. The Federal Court of Australia has ruled in favour of a case brought by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission which accused Fitbit of misleading customers about their rights under Australian consumer law. The company admitted making false, misleading, or deceptive claims to 58 customers around their rights to returns and refunds. The case is the second brought against Fitbit by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. The US-based smart wristband company owned by Google is sure to feel the pinch, with 11 million Australian currently converting to around $7.39 US, which may seem trivial, but those one-cent coins are such a pain to carry around. And finally, while the new Willy Wonka movie is currently on our cinema screens, this piece of news might make it seem like it's all happening in real life. The ABC reports that Levon Cookson, 
a farmer from Bowen, North Queensland, has launched his startup selling what he calls chocolate capsicums. And what's more, he's bootstrapping. The capsicums, which are colored brown and much sweeter than their ancestors, were a labor of love for Levon, who experienced many false starts in the development of his startup. Despite the adversity, Levon's product has hit the shelves of Australian supermarkets this year. If you're listening from outside Australia, you might know the capsicum better as a bell pepper. And if you really want to try one, I'll gladly send it to you for 11 million Australian. That's the Startup Roundup for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. The venture capital space is a world unto its own. And when founders misunderstand what it is and isn't, the results can be disastrous. What are the basics that you need to know? And how should a bootstrapping founder navigate it? To unpack this, I'm joined by Sramana Mitra. Sramana is the founder and CEO of the global virtual incubator and accelerator, One Million by One Million. She's a highly regarded Silicon Valley entrepreneur and strategist, and she joins me now. Sramana, welcome to The Bootstrap. Thank you. It's great to be here. (laughs) Exciting. So we're trying to demystify VCs for our early stage founders. So I want to start by asking, in your experience, what are some of the common misunderstandings that founders have about working with VCs? Okay. Well, you know, one of my pet peeves is do not go to VCs as beggars, go as kings. What does that mean? (laughs) That means that you don't go straight away to a VC with a begging bowl. And the earlier you go, the lower the probability is of you to actually be able to raise funding, which means that there's a lot, lot, lot of steps that you have to go through before you should go approach a VC. And that's, Mm. you know, today we're going to unpack what I just said in, you know, and and give it to you in much more discernible, understandable language and and concepts. But that's my first take on the question that Mm. you've asked. I love it. That's a great, I'm going to print that somewhere. That's fantastic. And distribute it everywhere. Yes, yes. So when you're talking to an early stage founder about this process, what is the guidance that you give them? And I guess a subset to that question is, is VC for everyone? Okay. So first and foremost, VC is not for everyone. There's a very uh, specific goal that VCs have, which is to go from zero to $100 million in revenue in five to seven years. This is not the normal state of business. This is hyper growth. Mm. Hyper growth is not the normal state of business. Normally, businesses grow at a linear pace. You go from, you know, 1 million, 2 million, 3 million, maybe in five years, you get to 5 million or 10 million. But getting to 100 million in five years is a very specific high growth trajectory that very few founders hit. So, but that is what the VCs are looking for. So you first have to assess whether you have what it takes to grow at that kind of pace. And if you don't, you should not approach VCs. Now, then Mm. comes the question of 
what determines the components of the, the type of business that would deliver that kind of growth? If that's what the VCs are looking for, and if you're trying to decide whether you want to approach a VC or not, this is what you need to go through and understand is what are the VCs looking for when you double click down on that high level goal of zero to hundred million in five to seven years. Number one is TAM, total available market. To deliver hundred million dollars in revenue, you need to start with a total available market size of a billion plus. Not every business mm. has a billion dollar TAM. Then the second thing is validation. Do you have something that the market wants? Are you able to achieve what we call product market fit? And if you go to VCs without achieving product market fit, your probability of getting funded is very low because mm. what are VCs trying to do? They're trying to de-risk, right? They're not, I mean, it's called risk capital. Venture capital is supposed to be risk capital, but the truth is VCs don't like risk. VCs, <laughs> what they like really, what they really, really deeply like is to come to the rescue of victory. <laughs> I'll say that again. VCs <laughs> like to come to the rescue of victory. So you are taking the risk you are doing the validation work, you are establishing product market fit. And then if you take that on a platter to VCs, that's the kind of situation that VCs really like to invest in. And the more immature uh, an ecosystem you're part of, and Australia is a less mature ecosystem, venture ecosystem than a Silicon Valley, for instance. Mm. And I would say even a Bangalore today is a more mature VC ecosystem than Australia. It's, it's basically the, the less mature the ecosystem, the more risk averse the investors are. Mm. So the more mm. risk mitigation you can do up front and the more you can give them an opportunity to come to the rescue of victory, the better uh, your chances of success in raising money. Let me ask you a question about, about what you just said in terms of the maturity of these different ecosystems, because one thing that I find dealing with founders here in Australia is that often they don't get very definitive feedback from VCs mm -hmm. they, about where they're at or what they should be doing. They get more, oh, that's that sounds great. If you get any traction, come back. And they take that as affirmation. I love what you're saying about they want to come to the rescue of victory. And what I, you know, what I try to say to people is, unless they've actually given you a check, then whatever they say doesn't really have that value. Are other ecosystems, are the VCs better at giving people more objective feedback? Well, that's, that's not necessarily the right question. The right question yeah. is, how do VCs operate? Right? No matter where you are trying to raise venture capital, what you need to understand is a very important concept that in 1 million by 1 million, we emphasize a lot, which is the notion of product. Just like you have, when you're doing a product market fit quest, you're trying to build something that your customers want. You need to do an investor entrepreneur fit exercise mm -hmm. when you're seeking mm -hmm. venture capital. So how do you do that? 
what I'm going to point you to is a series of courses that we have published on Udemy. And this is under the title, How Investors Think. So if you do Mm. these courses, we've done How Investors Think About Pre-Seed Startups, How Investors Think About Seed Stage Startups, How Investors Think About Post-Seed, Pre-Series A Startups. We have one course called Alternatives to Unicorn Chasing Investors. Not all VCs are chasing (laughs) investors. So, So you need to understand what is the investment thesis of different VCs? And, and what I've done in these courses is put you face-to-face with actual VCs who are talking to me about how they think about investment. So what I would like you to do is kind of do maybe four or five of these courses and really immerse yourselves in the brains of the VCs. And what that would do mm-hmm is give you an understanding of how the investors are thinking, and then you can parlay that understanding onto your own venture, and you can then steer well towards investor entrepreneur fit. Make sense? I love that. We'll make all those links available in the show notes as well so that people can uh, find that. That's fantastic. So, So you've talked a bit about, I guess, understanding the the type of investor that you might need to look for and how to understand where that match is for you. What, what are some things that people should look out for or maybe some red flags when it comes to VCs? Um, so there is, you know, there's a lot of people in the venture business today. The best quality VCs are people who have experience in venture capital, and also have experience in the domain in which you are doing your venture. I'm a huge Mm. fan of domain knowledge. You know, there are certain people who have done fintech investments. And if you're doing a fintech deal, you want to work with somebody who has expertise in fintech. If there is somebody Mm. who has expertise in healthcare IT and you're a healthcare IT entrepreneur, it's a better fit. So. I would, if somebody is completely green, has never done venture investment and has no domain knowledge, I would call that a red flag scenario. And I would suggest that you think twice before taking money from that kind of investor. And the simple reason Mm. being smart money is great. But dumb money can be a pain in the ass. <laughs> I'm going to need a whole set of T-shirts for all these great <laughs> sayings. Today. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I've been in places where dumb money has come in. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't end well. The problem, you know, the problem is that you can't really get divorced from your investors, mm. and you can't really mm. get divorced from your co-founders either. By the way. So (laughs) marriages can end with a divorce, but these relationships in these business relationships in the context of an investor entrepreneur relationship is not so easy to get out of. So you better Mm. be very careful of what relationships you enter into. Mm. Why do you think, and and I mentioned before we started recording that I find here in Australia that some founders, particularly if they've come out of you know a more traditional background, 
that they have almost a, a magical idea of what a VC is going to be and do for their business. Where, where do you think that 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 comes from? What can we do to try and educate people that it's not always going to be the well that comes the solution from the, that comes from the problem with the media. The media only reports on funding news, right? Such and such has raised $100 million, such and such has raised $57 million. And and that's what gets reported in the media. That's what gets celebrated in the media. As a result, naive entrepreneurs who have not done it before and who don't have a lot of perspective think that entrepreneurship equals financing. That could not be farther from the truth. Entrepreneurship equals customers' revenues and profits. Financing is optional. Exit is optional. Keep that in mind. Mm. Entrepreneurship does not equal financing. I love what you, you just mentioned, exit, because I think one thing people don't understand is that investment often puts a timeline on how long yes. you'll be with the business. That is right. Investment, if you take venture capital or that genre of investment, could be angel, could be you know micro VC, et cetera. But in general, that's the... A venture capital asset class that requires an exit that has a finite timeline. You have to give your investors an exit within a certain time period. But if you're mm. bootstrapping a venture, for instance, if there is no outside capital involved, then you do not need to necessarily exit the company. You can keep running a company for 20, 30 years. And in fact, some very, very successful companies have been built with largely uh, bootstrapped point of view. And in Australia in particular, I'm sure you're very familiar with the Atlassian story. Atlassian is a bootstrap company that, you know, raised money very, very, very late in the game. You know, they were already a very successful company when they raised money. Big Commerce is another Australian company that raised money much later in the game when they were already very successful. There are so many companies that that have been very successful in going very far coming out of Australia and, and also, you know, global companies in general, you may be familiar with this company called Zoho that to this oh, day yeah. with billion dollars in revenue has never raised a penny of venture capital. So yeah. those examples also exist. So don't be obsessed with having to raise capital and do not mistake success as financing. Mm. Because if mm. you follow my work, you may also find my coverage of debt by overfunding. There are a lot of companies that have raised a shit ton of money and gone out of business. <laughs> and that's yeah. the unicorn to unicorp story that we can, we've covered extensively <laughs> as well. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's not a pretty picture at all. No. I, I often will ask <clears throat> founders, you know, what is the minimum stake that, you're per, that you are prepared to hold in this? And sometimes they haven't thought about that. You know, it's their baby. What they really want is a long-term successful career running <clears throat> a, a business around the idea that they've got. And you know, they, they need to come to terms with that funding or a lot of funding is not going to achieve that, particularly in the early stages. So that, that's kind of one of the whole reasons for this podcast, for this episode is to try and just help people understand options. What, one of the other things that I'm very Can I interested on in. What you just said? Oh, please, yes, yes, of course. <clears throat> ownership matters. 
the more money you raised early on in the game, the more dilution you have to take. Because, you know, the less validation you have, the lower your valuation. And that means mm. if you try to raise money on a low valuation, you're giving away lots of your com- lot, large parts of your company. You know, straight away in round, in the first time you raise money, if you give up 33, 35% of the company, and then you raise another two, three rounds of financing, you end up with very low ownership in your own company. And it's no longer your own company. At that point, yep. you're an employee of a venture capitalist owned company. So, you know, if that's what you want, that's fine. Maybe you're looking for a job, not really control over your destiny, <laughs> and you can get fired. So, yep. so, so it's, in my opinion, it's better to, to bootstrap first and then raise money later and, and maintain, you know, some level of control over how much ownership you have in the company and, and how, you know, decisions are made. If you want all the decisions being made by VCs and you're just kind of executing, you're a hired hand. That's a very different journey than somebody who has real control over their destiny. Mm. I've mentioned this once before, but my first, uh, my original profession was education. I worked in IT and education for quite a while. Mm. And then I moved into an ed tech business. And the first business that I worked in I did not appreciate at the time it was a family owned company Mm -hmm. and there were, you know, I was young, ambitious, and there were points where I felt like they were very risk averse. And, and it wasn't until later that I really understood that they had never taken any investment. They had no debt. They, and their main goals were to be able to provide well for their family and rock up every day, looking people in the eye, knowing that they would still be able to employ them in 12 months. Mm-hmm. And they took that you know, really seriously. And I didn't fully appreciate that until I worked in you know, the reverse of you know, companies that went from privately held to taking on probably not smart money and then facing <laughs> the consequences of it that I realized, oh, those guys are all out of their business now. Whereas that a couple that I worked for originally they're still running that business. They're still employing those people. That's what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, Venture capital funded startups is a very low probability success game, you know, whereas bootstrapped entrepreneurship is a much higher probability success game because success is defined differently. Success is not $100 million in five to seven years. Success is whatever profitable business that you built. You do need profits because otherwise you go out of business. Right. If you're building a bootstrap business, you do need to get to profitability. That's the important piece of all this. So if you can get to profitability, then then you're in a very good place. Mm -hmm. So the other thing I wanted to touch on with you was understanding from the founder perspective the efficacy of VC funds, because what we see, and again, this this might be the ecosystem here, but when you look at uh, LinkedIn, when you look at social media, you get this very glossy, inclusive perspective of what funds are doing with their you know, accelerators, incubators, et cetera. But it's harder to access results in terms, first of all, the amount of uh, founders that are being funded, the demographics of those founders, but then also 
longer term success. They all shout the <clears throat> the success stories from the roof. So Canva, you know, is an example where the the number of firms that have Canva on their you know website because they put something in, you know, it has a uh, a lot of mothers, but then there you, you don't hear the the failures. So yeah, but in you, you know, know the venture capital <laughs> firms business model is predicated on one success and nine failures out of 10. So mm. they are the way they structure their funds is that they get, if they hit one home run, that was, that's going to pay for all other failures. So, so by definition, they're going to tout the successes, you know, the canvas and the LinkedIn's and the Facebook's of the world, and they're going to downplay their, failures but the but you can you can be you can rest assured that their portfolios are full of failures because the whole fund economics is predicated upon one success so mm. so i think the way to think about it is not so much how many companies succeed it's more what i said up front is you want people who have done it before you want people who have some domain expertise in your domain who have some and and you want to do some reference checking if you're talking to some VC that is interested in investing in you, you want to ask for references on who else have they invested in and what are the dynamics, how do they, you know, interface with their portfolio companies, the entrepreneurs and so forth, and 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 try to understand how they operate, what their philosophies and so on and so forth. So so the one thing I would say is that if you can attract a good VC. A seasoned VC, and I have many friends who are very successful in venture capitalists. I live in at the heart of Silicon Valley. I've, you know, I kind of grew up in Silicon Valley. I came here in 1996 at the top of the, you know, dot com, you know, first dot com mm -hmm. wave. So um, I knew a ton of people. I knew a ton of VCs. Some are close friends of mine. If you can, if if you do have the privilege of being able to work with a high caliber VC. That person can make a huge difference in your trajectory because they have contacts, they have, they can give you good advice, good mentoring, they can connect a lot of dots. So, you know, good VCs are worth their weight in gold, but, mm. but it's, it's all VCs are not good VCs. <laughs> I, I really like what you said in terms of asking around. One thing that I will do when people are talking about do, looking at particular programs is try and just connect them with other people that have done that because obviously you get the glossy view at the start, right. but talking to people who have been through it and th those various experiences gives you an idea. There's some, we have some programs here in Australia that pro have the promise of a bit of funding at the end of it. And sometimes if you go into that knowing, I'm not going to take that funding because it comes with too many, it's a bad deal. But some of the program that they offer along the way, you know, is 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 good. That can be something worthwhile doing. But I feel like that people don't understand necessarily the conditions that that kind of funding is going to come with. Right. So, and so here's, the, yeah. here's a tip on that. There are a lot of quote unquote incubators and accelerators out there right now that offer you a little bit of funding and take a chunk of equity upfront. Now, not all entrepreneurs should get on that equity track because the minute you start giving out equity, it puts you on that exit path. 
and you don't know yet when you're going into this kind of a situation, you don't know yet whether you are going to want to be in that exit track or do you want to build a long-term bootstrap business? Are you going to be raising venture capital? We don't know all these things. You know, when you're getting into an accelerator, my advice would be go to a non-equity accelerator. Do not go into an accelerator that absolutely requires that you have to sell your equity and take a little bit of funding because that may not be what you want. The way we have structured 1 million by 1 million, which is both an incubator and an accelerator, and we work globally, but we do not take equity for this very reason is that we want to work with as early stage companies as possible, as necessary, and we don't want to force them to give us equity. We want to let them learn without having to part with equity. This is a very important, very subtle, and very poorly understood issue. 100%. That is that you know, the product bus, my business, is all based on we don't take equity. You know, we, and we, we do things in small chunks for that reason. Because I think that some, particularly in the validation stage, Part of what I want people to really understand is the outcome of the work that you do might be that you don't keep doing this and that that's a good outcome. I really dislike things that say, build your startup in 90 days, that those sort of things where you you don't know what the outcome is. Not all ideas are ideas that are commercially viable. Well, there's one thing that I want to mention for people who are starting out, maybe one portion of your audience are people who are already doing startups, but then there's also a very large number of people out there who are thinking of doing a startup and haven't really fully jumped in yet. For them, I have this strong advice to study. And one way that I think it's wonderful to study is by spending time. You kind of put a Put an hour on your calendar on a daily basis, which is an hour to spend with a successful entrepreneur. Every day, you spend one hour with a successful entrepreneur. Now, you're thinking, how the hell do I do that? Where where am I going to get these meetings with successful entrepreneurs? This is something we have done in 1 million by 1 million, is brought together thousands of successful entrepreneurs and captured their entrepreneur journeys as case studies. You can access these either through my Udemy courses or through 1M by 1M Basic or 1M by 1M Premium. All of those formats are fine. You can decide how you want to access the material. But once you access that material, just save the time and spend the time with one of those case studies and really get into the depths of how somebody went from nothing to a successful venture. It'll give you confidence. It will give you inspiration. It will teach you all kinds of nuances, how to put one foot before the other. You will learn a lot and you'll just feel good. It'll be an hour of spiritual inspiration, an hour of confidence building, an hour of learning that is going to be invaluable. And very soon you will accumulate enough confidence to jump in and do your own thing. I love that. I think I, I love that emerging founders space for that reason that 
the the more that you can obviously people can cycle around in that and ultimately decide you know what this isn't for me i've learned a lot but i don't think i've right. got the also, the risk appetite you know etc that that's a perfectly acceptable outcome of that that process but often awesome. what i see yeah happen is and like we we run a you know a non equity pre accelerator program where people come in just with idea and often the pivots that you can make at that point are really powerful because you're not holding on to anything too tightly. That's right. You know, when you wait to, you, uh, I call them like the kitchen nightmares of startups where, you know, people have, they, they've built something, they've been going for a few years, they haven't got any traction. And then suddenly they're like, oh no, this isn't working. What do we do? Invalidating and, uh, bad ideas is a great thing to do. It saves many years of your life on doing useless stuff. Because if you, if you're, you know, spinning on a bad idea for many years, it's a wastage of very, very crucial life force. Mm, that's so true. I think there's been a lot to take away for early stage founders in this, but I just want to finish by asking if you could only give one piece of advice to a bootstrapping founder in this space, what would it be? Well, as I, what I started with is what I'm going to finish with. Do not go to VCs as beggars. Go as kings. The more bootstrapping you can do, the more validation you can do, the more you increase your probability of success and more you mitigate risk, the more you create the opportunity for VCs to come to the rescue of victory, the higher your chance of success, the better situation you're in, the more the VCs are going to chase you as opposed to you chasing VCs. And that really is the position you want to get. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time. I know I got so much out of that, not just some amazing catchphrases that I'm definitely going to start using, uh, but some you know really fantastic points. I'm sure our listeners did too. So, Shimana, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. It was great being with you. Bye-bye. You can find out more about Sramana Mitra and 1 million by 1 million at 1m by 1m.com. And that's it for the bootstrap for this week. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow wherever you listen. And of course, we would love a positive rating and review to help others find the show. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the bootstrap startups from scratch. We are also now on Instagram and threads. You can message us on any of those platforms. We would love to hear from you. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the Product Bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen, and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee. We were edited by Sammy Perryman. Original sound designed by Rob Clark. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch. Swivel.